Our scripture reading this morning is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. You can find that in your pew Bibles on page number 984. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Well, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17 and follow along as I read some of the verses from this morning's passage, which corresponds to the one we just heard. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, he 
has broken my covenant. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we need a touch from you today. The things recorded here in the words of Holy Scripture are great and powerful. They are deep. They are profound. They are beyond us. And yet, you mean for us to grasp them. So we will need the work of your Spirit for us to grasp. And for you to make plain what seems less plain. For you to make simple what seems hard. For you to make, to burn in our hearts what only sits in our heads. Father, we need your saving work in our midst today. There are some hard cases in this room. Really, all of us are hard cases. We need your spirit to work powerfully to change us. And we know your spirit does that by means of the word of God. That's what you've told us. So we're, we're here right now. We're, we're holding our breath. We're waiting for you. We want to see you do something. Um, we know that the miraculous that you do is tied to this ordinary presentation, proclamation of your word, the word of Christ. So I pray that you would help us along, Father, and do your good work in our midst. And we will give you all the glory for it, for you deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There was a distinctive practice that the Nazis employed during World War II at the camp they knew as Auschwitz. You've heard of it. Because the Nazi regime had set its hatred upon the Jewish people, and it was in the process of gathering them up to murder them in a variety of ways. And so around 1941 and following, hundreds of thousands of Jews were relocated to Auschwitz. And when they got there, they got a tattoo. It was a serial number indelibly stamped on their arm. It was how the Nazis kept up with their inventory of victims. So the tattoo was a sign to everybody. It said, here's one of the Jews. But to the person who was in the know, it was a sign that said a little bit more than that. It was an indelible sign that said, well, this one's marked for death. Because Auschwitz was a systematic death camp. The ones that they killed immediately, they didn't bother to tattoo, but... The rest, they marked them out, and it was only a matter of time before they would find their way into one of those death chambers. So if a Jew understood his times well, he would look on his own tattoo with dread as he faced a horrible future. Because it was a forward-looking sign, and it pointed to a future occurrence that was going to be disaster for that person. Now, in our text today that we just read, something quite the opposite is going on, thankfully. Here in our text, God has set his love on Abram, who's going to be the father of the Jews, his descendants after him. And as God gathers Abram and his people to himself, he gives an indelible mark to them not a tattoo, but it's an indelible sign that says this one is marked for life. 
to the Jew who understood the covenant that God was making with Abram, he would look on his own indelible mark with anticipation, knowing that he possessed a bright future. Because it was a forward-looking sign, and it pointed to a future occurrence that would bring blessing from God. And, and this person would live in the light of that blessing, the anticipation of that blessing. Now, I wonder how you are marked out today, or if you've even thought about that. I wonder if you have any sense of how you might experience the blessing of Abram, of Abraham. I think our passage can help us to know that, if you'll enter into it with me. The theme of the message, as I've put it on that outline in your bulletin, is this. God's salvation covenant obligates his people to live blamelessly before his face and to embrace his hopeful sign of cleansing, all fulfilled by Christ and given to believers by faith alone as a gift. Now, as we started these these verses here in chapter 17, verse 1, if you were to read some of those words kind of flatly or narrowly, you read in verse 2, God says, walk before me that I may make my covenant with you. And you might think, well, I thought God already made a covenant with Abram. Is he making another one? Are there several? What's, what's he talking about? How many are there? So I want to reinforce to you that there is only one covenant with Abraham just as in reality, there's only one salvation from God, one salvation promise. Every aspect of God's salvation finally resolves in Jesus Christ. But I want to point out to you that we are reading an Old Testament historical narrative. And what we're seeing is one story that's playing out in a series of scenes. That's actually familiar to us. We know stories work like that, like acts in a play, right? So this whole story is about the story of God's one covenant with Abraham. And here are the broad scenes. And that's why I point out that outline in your bulletin. I think it could be helpful if you just look at Roman numeral one right there, just to, just to put us in our context in, uh, in Genesis. We saw back in chapter 12 and a little bit more in 13, the initial promise. And we said, oh, God's making a covenant with Abraham. And so he was. And then we got to chapter 15, and we, we heard God taking a formal oath. It was a covenant oath. Well, that's act two. And then we get here to chapter 17, and now we're going to hear God speak of covenantal obligations, and he's going to impose this sign that's meant to be a hopeful sign. It's, it's act three. We're going to come up on Genesis 22 later, a familiar story. We're going to see Abraham's faith confirmed. All these are the unfolding narrative of the covenant with Abraham in a series of scenes. So don't be confused about that. But this morning, we want to look at chapter 17, verse 1. We're going to go all the way through chapter 18, verse 15. Now, I already read the first 14 verses, so let's walk through those first and try to unpack their significance. I want you to notice a pattern that's here, and you can kind of see it reflected in your outline, that there's an obligation... And then God reinforces his promise. And then there's an obligation, and then God reinforces his promise. And then there's the performance of an obligation, and God reinforces his promise once again. That's just kind of a pattern that takes, that takes place here. So now, in the first three verses that I already read, we've learned several things. First of all, Abraham, Abram, 
is 99 years old. So 13 years have passed since the last verse of the last chapter when Ishmael was born to Abram and Hagar. It's 13 years since God said, no, it's not going to be through Ishmael, but through the son of Sarai that my promise is going to come. It's 13 years later. Now, when you're old, 13 years isn't as long as it is when you're young, but when you're waiting for a baby, 13 years is a long time. Here in this text, God refers to himself. Uh, your Bible reads God Almighty. Almost all the Bibles translate that. It's the first time this name has popped up, the Hebrew name El Shaddai. And most of the Bibles translate that God Almighty. And I'll just tell you, frankly, nobody knows for sure what El Shaddai exactly means. But in the context helps you to see that it's, it implies, I'm the great one, you are in my favorable presence, I can do the impossible, and you ought to walk accordingly. There's some implication there of God naming himself El Shaddai. Now, as, as we've already pointed out, this isn't a new covenant or another covenant with Abram. It's the same covenant. So when he says, walk before me, that I may make my covenant, or and I will make my covenant. You must not read that as though God had not already made his covenant. Nevertheless, here's God stipulating some covenantal obligations. So we've got a promissory relationship. God's made promises in which he's standing, Abram's standing, and God says this promissory relationship also brings with it moral obligations on your part. So you shouldn't get lost when you hear God imposing moral obligations as though God's doing a bait and switch. I said it was a promise, but really you're going to earn it. No, no, no. Abram's not earning anything. It's just that there is reciprocity in the covenantal relationship. God makes a promise. There's also a demand from Abram. There's an obligation. And, and verse 7 captures that idea when he reiterates his promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the reciprocity here. I'm making promises. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. You have obligations. And Abram agrees with this wholeheartedly as we read. He falls on his face before God. And so God immediately turns around to reinforce the promises that he's already made. We read the verses. I'm going to make you a father of a multitude of nations. I'm going to make you fruitful. Kings are going to come from you. You're going to have numerous seed you're going to have all this land. And then God says, I'm going to change your name. So he's doing that to reinforce the truthfulness and the reality of the promise that this, this would be a reality to Abram. His name kind of means exalted father. Abram, Avram means exalted father. Abraham, by a little bit of wordplay, means the father of multitudes. So God says, I'm going to call you that from now on, because that's what I've promised you, be a father of multitudes. So that's going to be your name from now on. That'll remind you that I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. Now, we get to verse 9, and verses 9 to 14, I want you to know, are the heart of this passage. Uh, if I had... If I had Pastor Mitch's skill for putting fancy stuff in the bulletin outline, I could show you how everything literarily points to this unit. But you just have to take my word for it that this is the focal point here, verses 9 to 14, um, that God says, um, I want you to keep my covenant 
And here's what I want you to do. I want you all to be circumcised. I want you to circumcise yourselves and go and circumcise all the babies from now on, on the eighth day, all the male babies. Now, he says, this will be a sign to you. How is circumcision a sign? What does it signify? Well, you know, a sign is something ordinary, which is given meaning. It's assigned. That's not a coincidence. Assigned meaning. And the meaning of it refers to something outside of itself, something beyond itself. Sometimes signs in the Bible point forward in anticipation of something that's going to happen or something that's going to come. Other times, signs in the Bible, they point backward as a perpetual reinforcement of something that's already happened, a reminder. They're both signs. You need to know that the sign is never the actual thing. The sign's not the thing. It points to the actual thing, but there is a special connection between a sign and the actual thing that it signifies. It's not a magic connection. It's just an assigned connection. God says there's a connection. And when he says it, then there is. So there is. When God establishes a sign, there's usually some level of symbolism in it. It's a symbolical metaphor that's involved. Although you can get in trouble trying to push the symbolism too far because it's going to turn out later in the Bible that one spiritual reality can be referred to by different metaphors, different kinds of symbols. So you've got to be careful you don't push the symbolism too far. So what is circumcision? Well, circumcision is the ordinary practice of removing the foreskin of the male sexual organ. There, I said it. <laughs> it so it's... Its metaphorical significance is the cutting away of polluted flesh. It's, it's cleansing. It's cutting off. And cutting off as if it were dead. Leaving something behind. Leaving life behind. So circumcision is a deliberately forward-looking or anticipatory sign. It looks ahead to the day when the actual cutting away of spiritually polluted flesh is going to occur. So the person who receives it receives in his body a sign that says, we need our polluted flesh cut away. And there is coming someone, namely the seed of Abraham, who will accomplish this circumcision for us. And I say us because you shouldn't conceive of this as an individual sign so much as it is a community sign, which is why there's no problem that it only applies to men. It applies to the whole community. The women are involved too. Just the men are the ones who actually get circumcised, but it's the people who need their polluted flesh cut off. So can you see how that's forward-looking? 
the sign involves the reproductive organ, which just begs you to look forward to coming descendants, right? Coming seed. There's going to be another one coming, another one born, a final descendant, a final seed. So the, the sign of circumcision anticipates the coming seed of Abraham who cleanses. That's what's going on here. Circumcision in the flesh anticipates circumcision of the heart after a spiritual manner to be performed by the seed of Abraham. So it is on that basis both hopeful and future-oriented. Circumcision is not anything to be relied upon, but it points you to the one who is someone to rely upon, you see? The sign doesn't do anything for you except point you to the one who's going to do it. So God is saying, I'm making a promise to you, and I'm giving you an obligation. I'm giving you a hopeful, forward-looking sign that I want you to hold on to, that the seed I've been promising you will come. He will bring the promise of my blessing. He will meet the obligations for you, and he will even cut away from you what is wrong with you and cleanse you from what is wrong with you and work his work in you. That's a hopeful, hopeful sign. So what happens next? Well, God, after laying that obligation out there again, it's pretty hopeful as an obligation, then God reinforces the promises. We'll pick it up in verse 15 where we haven't read yet. He again reinforces the promises. God said to Abraham, now he's Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She shall become nations. Kings of people shall come forth from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac, Yitzhak. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I blessed him and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Those are the same promises that we've been hearing, just more detail. And God's plan seems humanly impossible. And that's why Abraham laughs at it, right? It, it's laughable. It is humanly impossible. But, you know, El Shaddai, God Almighty, that's another, that's another question right there. Because man's way, Ishmael, it's not God's way. Isaac, so he says, you know, you're going to name this kid Isaac, which means he laughs. Like, you laugh, 
in just a minute, Sarah's going to laugh. Is he going to name your, I'm going to give you a kid. You're going to name him Laughing Boy, just so you remember. So Abraham, he embraces the sign, uh, verses 22 to 27. He does what God has told him to do. He walks before God blamelessly on this score. He receives and applies to his household this anticipatory sign of circumcision. So the already justified Abraham receives the sign, you see. He keeps the obligation. He receives the sign. It marked him out as believing God's promise. It left him looking forward to the arrival of his distant seed who would accomplish everything required to make God's promises come to pass. And then God just turns around and once again reinforces the promises. And this is in chapter 18, the first 15 verses. Let's read those. And this is just another iteration, but a lot more detail. Listen to the passage. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre and he, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they, they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I, I, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Now, these angelic messengers, they're a visitation from God. God's in this bunch here. And God is talking to Abraham. And God makes his promise specific. This time, next year, your 90-year-old postmenopausal wife will deliver you a child, your child, from her womb. And you're going to name him Laughing Boy. Sarah gets a good laugh out of what she hears. Just like Abraham had laughed, but God's going to get the last laugh because they're going to have Isaac. The Lord's promise of salvation will not be accomplished by human means. It will be miraculous. A woman who cannot have children will have a child, and that child will be the Savior. Sarah's post-menopause pregnancy in Genesis 18 just anticipates the Virgin Mary's pregnancy in Luke chapter 1. Because it's Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, who finally comes to meet all the demands of God's covenant and to bring to pass all of his blessings. And you already know this. 
But we're talking about a covenant that brings us to Abraham's seed, who is Jesus Christ, the one to whom the sign of circumcision pointed. Christ was the one who was perfectly blameless before God. Philippians 2 represents to us that Jesus, having lived a life of perfect obedience, finally culminated his obedience in the obedience of his death on the cross. He pleased God in every respect, and he met the covenantal demand for perfect righteousness on our behalf. He gives that to God. And you see, the Bible tells us that God made him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him means Jesus stood in our place and suffered what we deserve. So Jesus Christ was cut off in a total circumcision. Colossians 2, which was read in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. See, you were circumcised, believer, in a spiritual manner, not with human hands, by the circumcision of Christ, the one that he underwent. Jesus underwent a circumcision. He was cut off. His entire body was sacrificed. He suffered what Genesis 17, 14 prescribes. He was cut off from his people as a covenant breaker. See, he was the covenant keeper, but he stood in the place of covenant breakers and he was cut off. And he did that so that covenant breakers could be brought in. You see, he brings us in. And so Christ's righteousness, his obedience, it is credited to us as Romans 4 teaches us. Our faith in Christ unites us with him. It gets us credit for his righteousness and all the blessings that God's been promising Abraham and his seed. Turns out they all belong to Jesus and Jesus gives them all to his people who are in him by faith. The great name, the great nation, the many nations, the many descendants, all that new creation land, it all belongs to Christ and it all belongs to everybody who's in Christ. And Abraham's promise looked to this. Abraham's sign looked to this. Christ is the one who even empowers covenantal obligation keeping in believers because we live in Christ with now circumcised hearts ourselves. Romans 2, 28, 29 tells us circumcision's not really in the flesh. It's of the heart by the spirit that makes a person a true Jew. And so with circumcised hearts, God, the Holy Spirit starts to work his practical righteousness in us, makes us able to be obedient. Romans says the righteous requirement of the law starts to be fulfilled in us. That's why Philippians 2, Paul can say, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what do you do with this enormous truth of Abraham's covenantal sign? What do we do with it? Well, every time we're trying to work towards applications, we need to be thinking, what are the implications, the necessary implications of the truth that we've been taught. And the first necessary implication that applies to some of you in this room doesn't apply to everybody, 
but it applies to some of you. So any person who does not possess the promise made to Abraham remains today outside of favor with God and under God's condemnation. That's a fact. The promise to Abraham still marks out who's in God's favor and who's not. If you are not in the covenant of blessing through Jesus Christ, then you are out. You can only ever be in or out. And you can't be kind of in, kind of out. Now, you can never, by your own efforts, manufacture the blessings that God is holding out, that he's promised to the children of Abraham, the children according to faith. And you can never, by your efforts, escape the judgment that hangs over your head. Can't do it. Some people try. Doesn't help. You remain outside of Christ. You remain in your polluted flesh. And you continue to face the wrath of God toward all the wicked. But the good news, that is a necessary implication of this passage, is that there is a way for an outsider to come into the covenant family. It was even alluded to when God gave the sign to Abraham. Foreigners can come in too. There's a way in. You can receive the same heart circumcision that was anticipated by Abraham's physical circumcision. Because Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, the substitute for sinners, has commissioned the worldwide free offer of the gospel. That's what we call it around here. That's what the Bible calls it. Good news, because Jesus says to the sinners of the world, come to me, believe on me, trust in my salvation, and I will receive you into my family. I will circumcise your heart to free you from bondage to your flesh, and I will include you in my inheritance. That's called good news because it's unbelievable news. Who does that? I am here to tell you today, Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, does that. That's what he does. So I'm calling on you if you're an unbeliever in this room, and some of you know exactly who you are. Some of you maybe are still a little fuzzy about that. You need to turn from your sins and come to Jesus Christ. You need to put your trust in him. You need to give up what you're trying to do and run to Jesus. I want to know if you're ready to be done with sin today. I want to know if you're willing to come to Christ today. Are you willing to leave your old life behind in order to come into this new life that he has for you? Are you ready for the cutting away of your polluted flesh? That offers on the table. Faith is the entrance into that blessing. Come to Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the first necessary implication here. There are a couple of other implications that I think also are necessary for us to apply. <clears throat> One is you should accept the call to walk before God blamelessly. I think, I think some of you, 
need to understand something more clearly than I believe you presently do. Forgive me if I'm pessimistic. The promise of blessing that God offers and the call to walk before God blameless, blamelessly, those two things are inextricably linked to one another. And, and in a way, the hopeful sign of circumcision is what links them. Now, the call to walk blamelessly is not a demand to be perfect so as to earn something from God. That isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about walking in a way that is obedient and commensurate with the greatness of the God before whom we walk and by whom we've been received in favor. But those things are linked that offer a blessing and that call to walk blameless before God. And here's how I think circumcision links them. The promise says, I will bless you freely as a gift. I commit myself to you. You don't have to prove anything to me. And at the same time, the call says, I want you to walk in a way that reflects well upon me. And the link of circumcision says, you know, for that to happen, your polluted flesh has got to go. And I'm just the one who can do that for you. You can't cut it away yourself, but I will cut it away for you, God says. And when you are free from the constraints of that polluted flesh, you will find that you can begin to walk before me and be blameless. Because that flesh has got you bound up. You're in slavery and bondage. And I'm going to cut that away. I'm going to set you free. So the call to blameless walking before God is a natural outworking of the promise that God gives. The circumcision that God gives freely is a gift that enables you to walk in obedience. That's what it does. Now, that has to mean, if you've got your thinking cap on, some of you might be confused. You cannot claim the free gift of salvation, the promise, and not claim the call to walk before God blamelessly. They're inseparable. You can't tear them apart. If you try to split them up, you're going to fall into a damning error on one side of the road or the other. You are. Because, let's just work it out. If you, if you supposedly say yes to the call to a blameless walk. Yes, I accept the call to walk blameless before God. But you say, I don't need this free gift promise stuff. You make yourself a mere legalist who thinks that his supposed progress and obedience this is what's saving him. He's earning his way with God. God's pretty pleased with him because he's doing a good job. And buddy, that guy's deluded. It's a damning error. But if you supposedly were to say yes to the free gift and the promise while rejecting the call to a blameless walk, you will just remain a fleshly, lawless person who doesn't realize that his wicked way of life continues to illustrate that he's never received the gift that we're talking about, 
which changes all of that. When you receive the free promise, it changes you. So all true believers accept the call to walk blameless before God because their justifying faith is in a Savior who also works to cut away their polluted flesh. So they work with his work. And when they work hard as believers at repenting from sin and doing the things that please God, it's not legalism. It's only legalism when you rely upon it. Your good works only become sin when you become proud of them. The fact that you still need to repent ought to keep you humble. Now, I think some of you think that being busy about your repentance and your obedience is just wrong or it's unnecessary. And you, you need to stop thinking that way. You need to repent from thinking that way. Don't, don't pride yourself on what you may think is a clear doctrine of justification by faith that alone that somehow results in you feel, feeling free to disregard your remaining sin and your lagging obedience. There's things that don't matter. That's not doctrinal clarity. That's gospel confusion. God's end game has always been to create a people for himself, blameless and zealous for good deeds. That's, he's never made a secret about that. It's plain as day in the Bible. Now, there's a helpful orientation toward this walking that we need to do. It's, again, it's right in the text. It's that little expression when God said to Abram, walk before me. And be blameless. You know, the reformers, they picked up on this language as they articulated that the Christian life, what they articulated what it's supposed to be like. Namely, it is a life that is lived before the face of God. You know, they always said in Latin, so it makes them sound smarter. They live corum Deo. We live before God. We live in front of his face. We live in front of God. We just don't always acknowledge that we're in front of his face, but we really are. Now, be clear. I'm not talking about the grand you know, metaphysical sense that God is everywhere, and so everybody walks in God's presence. How could you get away from him? That's talking about a salvation reality, something covenantal that's in this expression. Because we are in this relationship with God in Christ, we've been brought into God's personal favorable presence. His face is now toward us in favor. It's not away from us and it's not against us. We walk before him in Christ with his face toward us in favor. So I'm appealing to you as a, some practical help that if you were to acknowledge this truth more regularly, your blameless walk would be improved. It should be in your mind that whatever you do, God is right there with you, watching you. And what you do, you do in his face. Whatever you think in your heart, you think it in his face. He's right there in your heart. He knows your thoughts. You think your thoughts before the face of God. So you, you ought to stop and consider that. You ought to be asking yourself, are uh, these the deeds into which I wish to bring the Lord my God? Are, are these the thoughts 
into which I wish to invite the Lord my God? You know, in his own graphic way, the Apostle Paul, when he writes, tells us that the adulterer, the fornicator, brings Christ into his unclean union and makes the members of Christ the members of a prostitute, he says. Is that what you want to bring Jesus into? That's how Paul puts it. Is that what you want to do before his face? It's a helpful orientation to recall that you live before the face of God and that this is your privilege of salvation. It's not a guilt trip. It's just a privilege. When you live in the holy presence, you ought to think twice about indulging the unholy practice. That'd be helpful for you. The other thing I would say is a, an implication from our passage that goes along with this, accepting the call to walk blameless, is just to walk in the reality of your circumcision. Now, what do I mean? The reality of your circumcision. I refer you back to Colossians 2. Part of it was read. In him also you were circumcised, talking to believers, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what that means is, I'm not going to cheat and preach a separate sermon. It's not complicated. Your union with Christ, which is by faith, that's what baptism into Christ stands for, united with Christ. Your union with Christ has caused you to share in his circumcision. Christ, remember we said, was cut off in the flesh so you could be reconciled to God. Christ was made dead so you could be made alive. He marked you out for life. But his circumcision, his being cut off, becomes yours as a circumcision of the heart. It cuts off the old you, the old self. Jesus has acted to cut off your polluted flesh. Even as he nailed to the cross, the law's demands against you under pains of death. And so Colossians says as a result of all that, Jesus has disarmed the spiritual powers that oppose you. You're free from that oppression because that flesh has been cut off. He circumcised you in the heart. You share in his death, his circumcision. The passage goes on to say what that looks like. He says that means you've been set free from merely outward religious practices that he pointedly says are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You read the passage on your own, Colossians 2.23. The implication there, it's more than an implication, it's a fact. Your new heart reality, your circumcised heart reality is of value against the indulgence of the flesh. That's why I'm calling to you to walk in the reality of that circumcision. The Lord has cut off your polluted flesh such that it no longer enslaves you. You are not a slave to that old nature because you have a brand new nature 
that's been worked as a change in you. That means you can overcome the indulgences of the flesh. You're not subject to them. And how, how do you do it? How precisely? Would you like a how-to? He goes on. It's a great passage. He says, the, fir the first thing is, he goes on into chapter 3. He says, well, since you've died with Christ, that's what we're talking about, united with him in his death, sharing in his circumcision, you've died with Christ. Once keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Well, that's right. Can, can that be made a little more practical? Well, he does. He goes on in, in chapter 2, verses 5 to 10. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie <clears throat> to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So he says, whatever remains of your sin, you can put off and you must put off. You have to put to death what is earthly in you. He says, you used to walk in those things because you used to live in them. Now you don't live in them. You must endeavor not to walk in them. You have put off the old self. You have put on Christ. Now you must continue to put off the things of the old self and continue to put on the things pertaining to Christ. Connect all the dots, please. Put it off means put it to death. It means cut it off. It means circumcise it out of your life because it has no part in you. Whatever remains of the polluted flesh, however you see it, cut it off. Kill it. That's what he's saying. That's how you, what it means to walk in the reality of your circumcision. So you got to ask yourself. It's painful. But you got to. What, what sexual immorality do you see in you? You saw that on the list, right? You heard it. What improper passion or what impurity? Do, do you linger over images on the internet? that make your heart beat faster? Do you harbor dissatisfaction with your current sexual situation such that you feel entitled to some form of release? You got to know that all affairs of the body begin as affairs of the heart. All bodily fornication begins as unchecked lust in the heart. I mean, that means single people are not to think of themselves as pitiful victims of deprivation. You got to stop coddling yourself on that score if you're single. God has called you here, at least for now. So stop feeling entitled to more than God has given you. And married people are not exempt from this kind of immorality of the heart. Old people are not exempt from it. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality and impurity. And again, what covetousness do you see in you? Are you willing to call it idolatry as the Bible has just called it? Calling it the idol that it is, are you willing to kill it? Will you cut it off from you? And again, what anger and malice do you find in you? 
If anger and malice sounds too extreme for you to relate to, then just honestly answer it this way. Who is there that you think poorly of because of how they've behaved, especially how they've treated you, and you've not forgiven them deeply from the heart? You feel like you can't forgive them because they haven't repented toward you and come around and admitted that you, they were wrong and you were right. Can you see this lack of forgiveness as your self-righteous malice? That's what it is. This is not you being zealous for the truth. Don't, don't flatter yourself about that. This is you being zealous for satisfaction. You better put that away from you, believer. It's got no part in you. Cut it off. Cut it off. And do what the text says. Forgive the way Christ has forgiven you in case you have forgotten. Christ forgave you while you were yet a sinner. He forgives you and receives you the whole time that you are lacking in your repentance. He never waits for you to qualify to be forgiven. He just freely forgives you for his own sake. That's the way you're supposed to be about it. That's your covenant obligation as a born-again, new covenant Christian saved by faith alone. You have power over that sin. You exercise power over that sin. You cut fleshliness off from you. You kill the indulgences of the flesh. You mortify your sin. You put on Christ. You put on the love of Christ. You put on the peace of Christ. Now, my brothers and sisters, I want to say to you that this is not an onerous obligation that sucks the joy out of life. And you shouldn't look at it that way. This is not a morbid call to self-loathing. This is the joyful response of people saved from their own sins, saved from their own bondage, and now free to walk blameless before the face of God. This is how the inheritors of blessing live. This is what the sons of promise do. They embrace the cutting off of their flesh. They set their faces toward the inheritance of all those blessings. And they do it knowing that the Savior has done it all for them. He's the one who's cut off the polluted flesh. So cutting off the remnants of sin is not burdensome. He's the one at work in them, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Turns out his yoke is easy and his load is light. So my dear ones, my brothers, my sisters, I want to say to you that it is very good news that Christ has brought us to God. He has caused us to live in his favorable face. And it's joyful good news, isn't it, that he has cut off our polluted flesh so that we're no longer in bondage to it. But we may freely live for God. May God give us the grace to live in that freedom and put to death what is earthly in us, giving thanks to Jesus Christ as we wait together for his appearing. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we bless you, we bless you, we bless you. Thank you for promises made so earnestly and kept so powerfully. Thank you for your faithfulness, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you, Father, for showing us these things and giving us these things. Thank you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.